This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli, on another episode brought to you by our sponsors, betonline.ag and Indeed. Today, we're going to be talking about the Western Conference Finals, which are now set after a, uh, a somewhat stunning Game 7 in which the Denver Nuggets stormed away from the Los Angeles Clippers in Game 7 and led to All sorts of jokes on Twitter and all sorts of social media platforms about the Clippers' collapse from a 3-1 lead. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about where the Clippers can go from here. We'll talk about the Nuggets-Lakers series. And then we're going to get into a mailbag uh, for everyone who was kind enough to submit some questions uh, for the tweet solicitation we sent out on the NBA Math account. But before we dive into any of that, Dan, how's it going? I'm currently extremely distracted because Thor and Wade, my two puppies for first-time listeners, are literally just going at it, like fighting behind me. So if you hear that, I'm not running a fight club with animals. They're just they're they're still in like that that a-hole stage. So we're gonna roll with it. I'll play the mute button game as per usual, and I'll edit out some of the background noise. But if you hear any fighting, I promise that there are not you know there's not a fight club going on here. I just was stupid and got it was pandemic brain. I'm telling you, and decided to get two puppies and. Instead of one, how are you doing? I'm good, but I want to know who's winning. Currently, they're both upright, which is like a big deal. And they normally, we read that this was healthy fighting because one of them always like exchange submissions where they get on the ground. Um, but when they're both like upright as they are right now, they just like swipe at each other with their mouths and it can get, you know, they're being pretty quiet right now, though. No growling or whining or anything. So that's the best. That's one, the best kind of fighting, but if something happens, like if they cut one another's throats up, like I'm probably not going to realize it because they're being so silent right now. My two dogs, Aspen and Alder, are hilarious play fighters because they like, neither of them really knows how to dog. So <laughs> Aspen kind of just like towers over Alder and then Alder will give up and just go go belly up on the ground and just kind of like accept that she's going to get dragged around by her collar for a little bit. So it's just like, it's submission-based fighting, I guess. It seems like they enjoy it, so yay. <laughs> dogs are weird. They are, and they like your dogs are older than mine, so apparently they just don't grow out of it, and we have Definitely to get used not. to. It. We hired a trainer, and they told us to let let them like go, uh, like at each other, and that that's how they learn boundaries and stuff. But it's especially for my wife, like it's really hard 
for her to watch. And even me, like I'm just looking at it. I, I want to stop it uh, unless I'm mad at them. And then I'm rooting for uh, one of them to really hurt the other. Except I'm not, I, I'm not really, you know, I'd never do that. I was going to say, yeah, you better not. Thor and Wade are adorable. Uh, yeah, moving on. Let's talk about actual adorable stuff. Basketball or Davy. We can talk about Davy or basketball. The two might go hand in hand. I'm fine with either one. Let's go with the basketball. So you mentioned the Clippers really quickly. And I'm, I've normally tried to be more, especially within the past year or so, more cognizant of what I'm tweeting when I'm like dragging players or making fun of them to make sure that it's not personal and you do have to weigh, particularly in this instance, the mental gymnastics that go into operating inside the bubble. And when Paul George was kind of you know, vilified or crucified because he said he was dealing with anxiety or depression behind the scenes and some people thought that was just an excuse, you have to empathize with that to me, and I absolutely do. All of that aside, the Clippers deserve every single piece of poo being thrown their way because they acted like a team that had accomplished way more than they had. And I don't know if Paul George needs to be coached in like answering questions, but it seems like everything he says makes it worse. And I don't want to downplay the depression he's going through. Montrose Harrell lost a grandmother throughout all this, was probably not in the best shape or at least didn't have the stamina that he would normally would have had he been with the team the entire time. I really feel for all of that, but this is also a season long thing. And the Clippers, like, this was a terrible collapse. They were up three to one. They held double digit leads, I think, in the final three games and blew them. And in the fourth quarter, Kawhi and Paul George score. Just uh, as much as we did. Yeah, right? that's what I was basically stumbling to say. So, like, that's that's absolutely terrible. And I'm not saying you need to overreact to it, but, like, let's at, they can absolutely just be criticized for this because this season is a failure. Where if you would have said they lost in the second round in a seven-game series that they weren't up in or it was sort of this rock fight from start to finish, sure, you were up three to one and you couldn't close. That's a yeah, disaster. I think, I think the two biggest issues are just they're both related to perception, right? Because it's it's the the leaks that came out after Game Seven finished that the Clippers were exhausted, that they were so tired, their their some of their players couldn't play for longer stretches than just a couple of minutes at a time against a team that's coming back from a three one deficit for the second straight series. Like that's not really going to fly. And then Paul George's post-game comments about how internally, like, they never believed that this was a championship or bust season. Like, Yeah, it's not come, like he and Kawhi are free agents in 2021 or anything. Come Why would it be on. championship or bust? Yeah, you, you said that the, the Clippers deserve, and I believe the quote was, all the poo being thrown at them. I try not to and curse. I think, <laughs> I think the only way I would amend that is by saying all of the Clippers accept Kawhi. Because I, I think I'm willing to give him a pass in this series despite the bad fourth quarter where he very much disappeared on the offensive end because he definitely seemed like he was playing as hard as he could throughout the postseason run and he said the right things about accountability and about how he and the team need to be better going forward after the game ended. It, it seemed like he was the one who conducted himself the right way, which might be because he's the two-time champion and clear leader of the team. But I, I'm willing to give him a pass here that I'm not necessarily willing to extend to Paul George, who, while he was better in the second round, still did not play up to his standard and made it worse for himself after Game 7. I'm not willing to extend it to Montrez Harrell, who, despite the extenuating circumstances, was just not successful in his matchup with Nikola Jokic or whoever else he was faced off against, and to Lou Williams, whose bubble experience did not get off to the greatest start with the lemon pepper wings and didn't get better from there as he just completely missed 
so many of his shots as he was invisible on the defensive end and was a large reason for the collapse in game seven. So there's a lot of criticism to go around. I'm just, I, I don't know that I'm willing to extend it too far in Kawhi's direction specifically. I'm with you. I think the, probably the most you know, salient form of criticism for him would be, and people have said this and I agree, I don't ever want to hear the Kawhi Leonard versus LeBron James debate ever again and it's look if you I, I still maybe he's in that conversation for if you need one game like that's how we've always spun it if you need to win one game is he the player you want or is that a Giannis is it a LeBron like but yeah was, when you blow a 3-1 lead the myth of the the playoff legend goes away pretty quickly right and it, look it's LeBron has had his own playoff foibles but we've also seen kind of the limitations of look Kawhi became a fantastic playmaker but like Le, when he's having a night like Kawhi would as a, um, a score where his shots aren't, I think, was he five of 18 in that game or six, whatever he was. And then he doesn't score in the fourth quarter. Like his team would be elevated by his playmaking. If that's LeBron and with Kawhi, it's not. And this, you know, I just mentioned that conversation. You need one game. This was the game. And the, technically the Clippers had three of those games. So I, I, I agree with going to that slam, but I also agree with you. Like, no, this isn't on him. And maybe the locker room needs to adopt more of a Kawhi Leonard approach. I saw that, I can't remember who wrote this. Uh, I think it was someone over at the Athletic or ESPN. I don't really remember, so I apologize. But how they kind of had the Lou Williams, Beverly, like Harrell identity, like this bravado because they were underdogs last year. And I don't necessarily think that's problematic because I think what came with that bravado was not a sense of entitlement, but like more of a work ethic. It's did they maybe adopt the, the Marcus Morris and the Paul George stuff a little too much where that can come off more as entitlement. And I'm not trying to say any of them are entitled, but like what Paul George said throughout this season, basically, and especially at the end of the postseason, like consistently just made things seem worse on their part. But maybe you need to, you know, is this a fault of Kawhi? Like, because the reports of um, this, I know from John Hollinger of The Athletic wrote about how there were just reports that the locker room just totally wasn't in sync. And so you could say like, maybe they should have adopted more of the Kawhi model, but is it even on Kawhi and then Paul George a little bit? Because those are the two guys you would normally look to to unify a locker room and find that identity. I think it's a fair conversation to have. My question to you is, what is the reaction here? Is it a, one, run it back entirely? And I'm not even talking about go out and make a trade. You have Marcus Morris and Montres Harrell are free agents. Jermichael Green is a player option. That's going to be fascinating. $5 million. That's right around the mini MLE money this year. Um, are you running it back in that form to where you're going to reinvest in this organization? Are you looking at scenarios where you could upgrade the point guard position. And I know people have mentioned Goran Dragic, uh, Dragic as a free potential free agent, but like if you're only going to be working even with the non-taxpayers mid-level, I don't know if that does it. And I say that because the way he's played, I could see the Heat being like, hey, here's a one-year $30 million offer, and that's going to be the equivalent of more or basically three years of the, the non-taxpayers MLE. And that's assuming you're working with that because you would have to get rid of both Morris and Harold just to have a chance um, to be working with that full amount. And so my question would then be, do you then, would you also consider making a move that would be more drastic? And the one that I'm just going to dance around is, and I'm just curious of what you would say to this. If you're the Clippers, are you doing Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Zubats, and Rodney Magruder for Chris Paul? That is a trade that works financially. And I'm just curious if you would consider doing something like that to maybe one, it's definitely an upgrade at the point guard position. As much as you know, you Patrick Beverly is can be feisty on defense, but he's not fouling and is in more shape. Lou Williams is going to be getting buckets into his mid nineties, I would say, around there or something. But he even shot poorly in this series, and I think Zubats is probably the biggest loss of the four 
in this trade. When you look at, uh, he has three years left at basically around seven point three million a pop on average. I'm just curious if you're the Clippers, would you consider something like that? Yeah, if if something like that really is on the table, I think you take it and try to capitalize on this window before George and Kawhi have a chance to turn down their player options for 2021, 2022, and potentially leave in for agency. Uh, I don't think that you necessarily like go out looking for something like that so much as hope that it falls into your lap because as constructed, this team should largely run it back. I can see them letting Harrell walk if he gets a big offer from the Toronto Raptors or from someone else. Um, I would bring back Marcus Morris Sr., who was fantastic for this team on, on both ends for much of the postseason run and for the, the brief amount of the regular season that he spent with them. But the rest of the core, I think, is worth leaving intact. They, they should not be looking at like blow-it-up scenarios where you're, you're thinking about shopping Kawhi or, or Paul George. Um, if, if you can get that guaranteed superstar, and we're talking about like guaranteed superstar, um, you do it because go all in while you can. But I, I don't think that it's it's a situation where they need to be like, this isn't working, we need to make changes. And even in that scenario, one, Kawhi, you're not trading because he's a top three player. And then even Paul George, still top 15, he's had struggles in the playoffs. The, the playoff P thing is now it's just disastrous. I So I'm totally with you there. And like I think where you, I think with Marcus Morris and Harrell, um, Morris, while he did like kind of struggle in the beginning here, like it did seem, I mean, he didn't have the best close of the postseason, honestly. It's, it felt like at points um, in the bubble that he really kind of mastered the role on offense and then what he could do for them defensively. The, the Harrell's contract, his next deal is going to be fascinating to me. Uh, I would say that you can, if there are teams out there that really want him and maybe you could work out sign and trade scenarios, but then you get into a situation where you're hard capped and can, can that happen if you're taking on money in a Harrell deal plus you're re-signing Marcus Morris? I don't know how feasible that is. I would just be wary of the cost of at retaining Harrell, and um, a lot of people think that he lost himself money in the bubble. So perhaps that's you know perhaps that's accurate. And so his next deal is going to be fascinating because I, I do largely uh, default to you that if you want that, that you should run it back, um, and that you shouldn't be actively looking for a scenario like the Chris Paul. If it's on the table, then maybe consider it. Uh, the Harrell contract is the one that that's just a hang up for me. Is I think you have to be very wary of what you're going to to pay him moving forward. Yeah, I think it ultimately boils down to if you are 100% sure that you're getting an upgrade at a position, then go for it. But this is not a situation where they need to be taking risks around Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. No, I'm 100% with you. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because it gives you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in the hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through September 30th, which is my birthday, so you know it's good. But they're not in the conference finals, even though they 
they probably expect it to be. The, the Denver Nuggets are, and they're facing the Lakers, who this is going to come off as criticism to the Nuggets, but the, the Lakers were no doubt excited that this is the pull that they got. And so before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this series, just at the top, who do you have? You know, we, we both picked the Clippers going into the last round and then reversed course for Game 7. Um, I'm, I'm going to risk that playing out again because I, I just I think that, that Jokic is going to give Anthony Davis and whoever else is guarding him a lot of trouble. I have confidence in Jamal Murray's offense at this point. I think that the depth of this Los Angeles team puts – or the, uh, the depth of this Denver team puts Los Angeles' depth to shame. But – the Lakers have been sitting there waiting for the Nuggets to arrive on this stage. The Nuggets have fought back from two different 3-1 deficits in emotional, physical, gutted-out series. And I just I don't think that the energy, either physically or emotionally, is going to be there, um, no matter how much they want it to be. So I'm going to go with the Lakers in six. I'm going with the Nuggets in seven purely because I need to stand by my my Nuggets championship pick from the preseason to some degree. I've waffled too much, and I got a compliment from I was doing a radio show, and one of the producers mentioned, like, kudos to you for being one of the only uh, people that picked the Nuggets to win the title. And I was just like, this isn't a victory lap. I was like, I do not deserve that with the amount of times that I just not even just waffled, <laughs> but outright went against them. But now I'm going to try... Now I'm going to try and capitalize on on that pick and pick Denver in seven. And I think part of it is because of their depth. And I, I get what you're saying, um, playing in the two seven-game series, having to erase three-to-one leads in these back-to-back series. That's got to take a toll. I, the Lakers have LeBron and Anthony Davis, who are arguably, I would put Jokic above Anthony Davis, but there's a chance. I was going to ask you that later. I think what happens here, though, is there's a chance that Los Angeles has the two best players in this series, which that's obviously problematic. I would still say Jokic is better in the macro, but looking at this series, you know there's going to be LeBron, and then there's a, a possibility that Davis is is another one. So, <laughs> as I lose my train of thought with the fight club going on behind me here, but I the depth matters to me, and I, I have been impressed more with the Lakers supporting cast pretty much all year than I thought I would when you look at them on paper, but... And it, in the playoffs specifically, there has been like an, a different player every game, it feels like, where no, you can't necessarily count on Kuzma and KCP, and I guess maybe you could count on playoff Rondo, but like there's always been one or two players that really rise to the occasion, and maybe that's the power of their depth. I look at Denver's as just far more reliable when you're looking at the players they're getting, you know, from Gary Harris, Michael Porter Jr. coming off the bench, knowing that you have a backup point guard like Monte Morris in this race. And so the, the fact that they're deeper overall, and that I think you would argue even right down to Torrey Craig's defense, um, that you know what you're going to get from, from your supporting cast more so than you do the Lakers. That's why I would pick them over Los Angeles. The matchup that is going to be the determining factor though, to me would be, look, the LeBron thing is a wash. Like he's going to, Put Paul Millsap or Jeremy Grant on him. It doesn't matter. Like LeBron is going to, I feel like, pick apart this Denver defense. The Jokic Davis matchup is interesting to me because you have to win that, and you're not going to win it defensively. Um, this is actually lower than I expected, but on the possessions in which Jokic guarded Anthony Davis during the season, uh, the Lakers had a, a 117 offensive rating, which is still ridiculously high. Um, you're probably going to see other looks where it's you know Grant on him and or Millsap on him. Uh, can you actually do that, though, if LeBron's also on the floor? With the Nuggets, it probably means you have to play Grant and Millsap at the same time, which is definitely possible, but how many minutes can you get out of that? What does that do to your offense? 
And then just offensively, I don't think, you know, I don't want to say that Davis can neutralize Jokic, but you certainly don't hate the idea of putting um, Davis on Nikola Jokic. And so on the possessions in which Anthony Davis guarded Nikola Jokic during the regular season, the Nuggets had an offensive rating as a team of 91.2. That is mind-meltingly low in general, but especially for just the Nuggets. And that's going to be, to me, everything. If you can win that matchup in the aggregate, and it's going to have to be done on offense would be how I'd argue it, you can be in good shape. Otherwise, though, this could be a series in which Los Angeles actually runs away with it, um, not just because you have Anthony Davis and LeBron James as the two best players in the series, but also because you know we're throwing all this on top of the fact, as you've already mentioned, Denver just had not only went through two games, seven-game series, they had to erase two three-to-one deficits. That has to be just mentally, emotionally, physically draining in ways that I can't even fathom. We saw Jamal Murray's face when, after the first one, he was told that he had to play again two nights later. And yeah, I just, I can't even imagine like going through another tough seven game series and then having to face LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers. And yeah, I mean, as, as important as that Anthony Davis, Nikola Jokic matchup is, and I tend to think it's going to be more even than those regular season numbers indicated. Jokic is playing at such an unbelievably high level right now, and I genuinely have no idea how you stop him with only one defender or even with two, given his passing vision. But I, I think that if, if you're the Nuggets, like that, that LeBron matchup is so fascinating because we've always seen teams have to pick between letting LeBron pick you apart as a scorer or a passer. But with this Lakers team in particular, I think you have to make him into a passer and, and make that supporting cast beat, beat, beat you. Uh, you. You have to make Anthony Davis take a bigger offensive load than he typically wants to and, and try to beat you single-handedly. But do the Nuggets have the personnel to do that? Because Jeremy Grant and Paul Millsap, they're gonna have they're gonna have a lot of trouble keeping up with LeBron. And the possessions where Michael Porter Jr. ends up on him, that's gonna result in roughly a 400 offensive rating for the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, I, I, I think we're gonna see some Tory Craig on him. Um, probably a lot of switching to keep quicker players in, in between him and the basket as best you can. Uh, but it's that that's going to be the, the biggest challenge. And I think we will see quite a few different looks from Mike Malone throughout this series. Yeah, the Torrey Craig one's a, a good mention because I th- he was their most frequent defender statistically uh, on LeBron James during the regular season. And LeBron shot 415 against him. And so, like, I don't think that's necessarily a, a harbinger of, of anything. But that, I guess that's another body you can try. And look, at that point, if he's, it doesn't matter if he's not hitting his threes. If he's, like, making life difficult on LeBron, he's just on the floor. And then you flesh out your lineups around that. The other thing I'll say, too, is so for Michael Porter Jr., uh, very quiet. In game seven, if he's going to come off the bench, like he can really cook um, against some of those Lakers units. But like if he's on the floor when Davis and LeBron are at the same time, like I feel like it becomes easier for Los Angeles to target because you almost have just looking at those two guys specifically. I'm not saying Michael Porter Jr. will be on any of them, but you could are you going to be able to generate just switches more easily? Because if you can attack Jokic in the pick and roll with Anthony Davis, or if then if you can just run LeBron pick and roll with who's ever guarding Michael Porter Jr. or whoever Michael Porter Jr. is guarding, that kind of gives the Denver Nuggets two more vulnerable points. And so do you look at staggering like minutes stringently where Michael Porter Jr. is only playing when one or none of LeBron and AD are on the floor, so basically just one of them being on the floor. I don't know. Am I overthinking that? Because maybe it just Denver has to just go all offense, everything. I also don't know. I'm just, as 
as you've also mentioned too, which was something I was going to point out, it feels like we're going to get a lot of variety from Michael Malone, maybe more so than usual in this series. And, and I'm really interested to see, one, what, what he ends up doing, particularly as the series goes on and you're making adjustments, uh, and two, how it ends up panning out. My other question to you on this would be, though, how do you see the Lakers playing? Because they went to the AD at the five model with against Houston because they had to. First of all, it took them too long to get there, in my opinion, but they had to. Do you stick with that, or are they because you're going to see you know, a lot of Millsap Jokic minutes at the four or five, or are you, are we going to see a lot of dual big lineups? And then does that actually then benefit Denver? So before I answer that question, I did just want to give a shout out to Michael Porter Jr. Because after his ill-advised post-game quote about wanting more touches and, you know, maybe we're giving the ball to Jamal Murray and and Jokic too much. Who'd have thought he wanted more shots of all people? Right. The, The Nuggets could have cratered in the locker room around that but instead they reacted the right way and more importantly porter handled himself the right way after that you know he got fewer touches following those remarks and that did not stop him from hitting a massive three-pointer in game five to keep the team alive it it did not stop him from continuing to exhibit all sorts of effort on the glass uh from playing at least more high energy defense. I hesitate to say more effective defense, but he at least looked more engaged. And I think it's it, it, it is a credit to him that he reacted to that, not by disappearing, but by realizing that he needed to contribute in other ways and then doing that. That was a big move for a rookie, and it really helped spark that comeback. Yeah, I mean, he there, there were some moments where he had like really good help defense in that that second round series and so it's still like i don't know that you could rely on that but maybe it does make right. him more playable right. in this series throughout. i mean look they played him over 15 minutes in game seven i believe when he wasn't even really scoring and so the threat of him certainly matters um just someone who can i always forget how tall he is until i see a, a defender closing out on him and he really hasn't released it yet but then they, he just shoots over them anyway and it's like oh yeah michael porter jr is like eight feet tall the wait is finally over football is back you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. What were your thoughts on the the lineup question, though, that I have for you? Yeah, so I I think we've seen enough demonstrable evidence at this point that the Lakers are at their best with Anthony Davis at the five. And that wasn't just a product of a weird matchup with a funky Houston Rockets rotation. But that's how they play best. You know, it allows them to get the most talent on the court. It allows everyone to play to their most fundamental core strengths. It works. I don't think we're going to see it, though, because Davis is is hesitant to take on that role. I don't think he's going to want to be banging around with Jokic for the entirety of a what could be a long series. And we're, we're going to see minutes for JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard that we just didn't see against Houston because Houston refused to play Tyson Chandler for whatever reason. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think that we will see more of those dual big lineups, probably more than we should see them. And if Frank Vogel does 
initially go with a Davis at the five lineup for a significant chunk of game one, then I'm going to have second thoughts about picking this to go six games. (laughs) I mean, that's a fair point. Uh, So two things before we kind of wrap up this uh, Western Conference Finals preview. Who's the non-star from each team that you're watching? I'll throw it to you first with uh, Denver. Who's the non-star you're watching for that team? You're going to laugh, but it's Monte Morris for me. You know, he's been on he's been one of my favorite players for a while just because of the way he plays. But I think that against this Lakers team, you have to be able to win the reserve battle. And he is key to that Denver bench. He can also play with the starters. And if he can capitalize on a fairly weak guard rotation for the Lakers, just by avoiding making mistakes, by setting up everyone, by getting his own shots and hitting them efficiently, that gives a huge spark because you have to win reserve versus reserve minutes, especially on those few stretches where LeBron is not on the court. Yeah, that's a great point. I think mine would be Torrey Craig, if only because it feels like he might still get a majority of the LeBron assignments. And then if it's not Torrey Craig, I, I guess it would be Jeremy Grant. Like I, I wouldn't imagine we'd see too much Gary Harris there. So th- just because of the sheer defensive workload that he'd be carrying, I'd go with Craig. And look, if he's hitting like even, if you can count him to hit like one every one of his, one one out of three from beyond the arc, like one of every three of his three point attempts, that might just be enough to just roll with him for lengthy minutes during this series. And I guess maybe that's my, I'm just very intrigued to see how in this setting, how Denver, you can probably get away with more stuff in the postseason, maybe play it more conservatively, but you're going to have to take more gambles here. I think um, to cater to the offensive fit. And so I'm more just intrigued by how Denver is going to eventually go about defending LeBron. Who's your non-star for the Lakers that you're watching? My my initial answer here is Vogel because of the rotation questions and where he's going to play Davis. But if I have to pick a player, I think it's KCP who has has struggled a lot during the playoffs. Which you know when we, we've we've seen him struggle, we've seen him be invisible, and then you look at the numbers and he's somehow shooting forty one point two percent on three pointers while taking five per game, five point one per game. Um, that has to continue, and he can't be invisible because I do think that. This Nuggets team is really going to prioritize getting the ball out of LeBron and Davis's hands as much as possible. You know that Kyle Kuzma is going to be a willing shooter. You can rely on Danny Green in postseason scenarios. If KCP gives them another shooter on the perimeter who's going to demand defensive attention, they get that much tougher to guard. And I think we're going to see him having to, to deal with the Jamal Murray highlight reel on a regular basis. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to look at it. I would have Rondo just because the... LeBron, by the way, averaging under 35 minutes per game to the first two rounds of the playoffs, which is actually pretty incredible. Uh, hashtag the Rockets failed. But the non-LeBron minutes, whether it's going to be 5, 8, 10 per game, like those are just so critical for the Lakers. And he is going to be their best creator for everybody else in those situations when LeBron isn't on the floor. And so if you can't necessarily win those minutes, but kind of play them like dead even, um, their half-court offense has struggled. Look, it's been lackluster uh, for most of the regular season, even with LeBron on the court, 57th percentile of half-court efficiency. It was like um, outside the teens, like in this close to the single digits, I believe, when he was off the floor. And so that just becomes a, a really a big deal. And look, he played well through the five appearances that um, – he, he's made in the playoffs thus far. He's slashing um, 51-44 from the floor. Um, can the shooting continue? Because the Denver's going to leave him open. Every team is still going to leave Rondo open, and he's not going to hit those shots off the dribble. So that's 
that's still, you know, schemable. But if he's going to give you, you know, if he's going to hit those wide open threes to maybe where Denver has to even think about defending him. And then again, he helps you tread water without LeBron. Uh, that makes this thing like super interesting. So I, I'm, I, I can't believe that I'm talking about in the year 2020 that I'm going to be keeping my eye on, on Rondo, but here we are. Playoff Rondo is a thing. And but really, I, I think you can pick like any non-LeBron and Davis players on the Lakers, on this yeah, Lakers because, team, and, and it's you can make a valid argument. Well, here. it's because of what I was saying before, where it's like, I don't think they have a consistent supporting cast, but they've consistently gotten a different member of the supporting cast to, to step up, right. which helps. I did want to add one note to what you were saying before. So... Um, the Nuggets have played 52 minutes this season when Anthony Davis is with JaVal McGee on the court and Jokic is also there. Uh, they're a plus 18. So that's something to consider, I think, when there's not a large enough sample. I, I looked at it with Dwight, too. Um, the Nuggets are a minus four when Davis and Dwight are on the court against Jokic. It's 35 minutes. So there's that. But so you're looking at, let's just look at those net dual big situations with Jokic um, in let's just say roughly 90 minutes of action, the Nuggets are a, a plus 14. And so like that, that just might be something to, that the Lakers are going to have to consider as the series wears on, is that perhaps they can't win the dual big minutes when Jokic is on the floor for Denver because he's going to give you, if you're in situations where he's able to defend McGee or Dwight Howard instead of Davis, or if you have one of them defending him instead of Davis, that makes the Lakers just a little bit more vulnerable. We are by no means the first people to say that Davis is best at the five, but sure, we'll be the latest. <laughs> are you ready to... D- so we're on the record once more. I have nuggets and seven, mostly out of sheepish stubbornness or just sheepishness, whatever you want to call it. And and I, I actually think that this is going to be a better series than people are crediting, but maybe, look, if the, if the Jokic-Davis matchup gets a little out of control and tilts too far toward the Lakers, that's how I could see this really becoming a runaway series. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Lakers and six, but I think that those are going to be competitive games, and that if you're picking the Nuggets, then you should because they are every bit a legitimate contender. Let's dive into this mailbag though. So I'll go with the first question. I'll take us through this. Comes from Stephen Ahern. He asks, "Is there another player who used to be cringeworthy at three pointers, but is now a sharpshooter just as much as Marcus Smart?" Yeah, I mean, we we have seen a history of those kind of players developing over their careers. You know, you look at at like Rajon Rondo, who we we were just talking about, where the first nearly decade of his career, he was in no way a quality three-point shooter, but he's at least been around or above the league average in the last handful of seasons because he's worked on it. I think the the most notable historic example is Jason Kidd, who had absolutely no jumper to work with when he entered the league. He shot 27.2% on threes as a rookie and consistently became a 40-plus percent shooter by the end of his career. There is evidence of players being able to elevate that particular area of their game. I think that virtually every NBA player is talented enough to do that. It's just a question of whether it makes sense for them to work on that particular facet of their games versus others, so, which is why we probably see more guards develop into better shooters as their careers progress. But yeah, I mean, this is in no way like some unprecedented leap from Marcus Smart. I, I think Jason Kidd is going to going to be the the natural pick here when you're looking at historically. Someone else I'll throw out there uh, would be LeBron James, even just because he, for the first part of his career, it took him more than a half, it was closer to a decade to shoot above 34.5% from three. And now he's consistently since, uh, you know, 
so let's look at it this way. So from 2003 to 2011, 32.9% from three. And then since then, this was his second season with the Heat. So 2012 through now, even though he's been under 35% um, the past couple of years, during this time, he still shot 35.8% from three. So that's not knockdown sharpshooter. And I don't know that I would call Marcus Smart a sharpshooter just yet. He did hit 40% of his pull-up threes during the regular season, and he's shooting 40% on catch-and-shoot threes in the playoffs. We've seen him decline in the playoffs, too. Last year, after he had a good three-point shooting season, he shot sub-10% in the postseason. So there, there's a lot going on there, but I think that either of those might be apt uh, comparisons. And, and certainly the LeBron one, totally a different type of player um, because he was at least taking threes for most of his career. But the percentages were just so shaky um, you know, through the first seven seasons or so. Yeah, we, we can also look at free throw percentage as an indicator of shooting ability. You know, it's it's pretty commonly used when evaluating college prospects to see if they have room to grow as a three-point shooter to see if their three-point percentage might be a little bit fluky. And with Smart specifically, dating back to 2015-16, his sophomore season in the NBA, he's been a 79.5% free throw shooter. Even in college, he was at least competent from the line. As a freshman, he shot 77.7%. As a sophomore, 72.8%. So even if the three-pointers weren't there, when you bring into the equation context and the demonstrated ability from the foul stripe, you know, he was, especially at Oklahoma State and early on in his career, he was taking those more hero shots rather than playing within the flow of an offense. As he's learned which shots to take, as he's gotten more comfortable operating within the flow of the Boston offense, I think we're just starting to see those those dormant skills starting to be realized. Let's move on to a question from Chris Krause, friend of the pod. Should the Sixers have signed Jimmy Butler to the fifth year, passed on Al Horford, and brought back Julia Lokafor to be their backup center? Oh, wait, wrong room. But I'm going to pose the question anyway. Yes. That's my answer. Just a definitive yes. Like, obviously, they, they should have brought back Jimmy Butler at this point. Like, hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know that's how the saying goes. But, I mean, we, we've seen that this Al Horford experiment has not worked out. And it's hard to imagine just how much more competitive this Sixers team would have been with more years of Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid growing together. I guess the better question would be, had they given him the fifth year, would he still be in Philly? Because it, I still don't feel like we fully understand whether it was a situation that they just didn't want to pay him, or if he was just actually unhappy there and wanted to be in Miami. But if it actually was an issue of they didn't want to give him the fifth year, well, that's like objectively dumb. And I don't even think that this isn't hindsight. Like this is like that was just objectively a bad decision at the time. If that was the case, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I've never gotten the sense that Jimmy Butler is a player who needs to be in a certain city or with a certain organization so much as he needs to win and he needs to be surrounded by people who share that mentality. And maybe that was tough for him to deal with, with Embiid, who doesn't always keep himself in in tip-top shape, and with Ben Simmons, who hasn't grown as some people have wanted him to. Um, But winning is the great panacea. And with another year together, who knows how far they could have gone in the Eastern Conference playoffs. And I I don't think it's in any way unrealistic to think that he would have been there long term. We're going to actually stick with with Jimmy Butler here. Um, Sam Rapp says, Jimmy Butler TPA by year. So let's start with his, just going to run through this, start with his rookie season in 2012, minus 8.66 TPA, sophomore 75.43, third year 116.86, 
Next, the following season, 228.3. The year for that, 197.3. That's 2016. 2017, 384.82. 2018, 216.4. 2019, 146.6. And then this year, he ranked ninth in TPA with 216.64. I believe that was his second highest total in general. So Jimmy Butler has been, it's kind of been all over the place, but when you look at how often he's kind of changed teams over the past few years and he was dealing with injuries in certain seasons, he's always just sort of been an impact player. And it's funny that only his rookie year was he ever by TPA a net negative. Yeah, and it is, it's fun to look at that progression too, just because of what we know about his backstory. Um, and, you know, just uh, coming coming to, to Marquette and, and thriving um, after experiencing homelessness and, you know, being the, the 30th pick of the 2011 NBA draft and only playing 8.5 minutes per game as a rookie and developing into this absolute full-fledged superstar. Um, so, you know, even if he's vacillated, he's vacillated within those upper echelons for a while now. The next question comes from Syriac. Is RJ Barrett a real bust? <sighs> Can we call anyone who is going through the New York Knicks' developmental program a real bust? Or are they just like a bust through sheer circumstance? But but regardless, I mean, like, we're talking about a guy who averaged 14.3 points and five rebounds <laughs> as a rookie playing for just an atrocious team with ill-fitting pieces that was giving him too many shots and not supporting him. Um, I'm hesitant to bury anyone after a rookie season, but particularly given that context, I, I, I feel like it was hard to watch R.J. Barrett with the Knicks this season in general, but it was also hard to watch Barrett with the Knicks this season and, and not at least see flashes of the potential that made him the third overall pick in the 2019 draft. Like you could, you could very clearly see the offensive talent just waiting to be maximized with a more competent roster and staff around him. Look, the I don't think you can call him a bust. It's not even just the year one stuff. It, they were just like, hey, let's take this ball-dominant player whose jump shot is questionable and surround him with a bunch of non-shooters. Like, yeah, I it think it doesn't make any sense from the start. It's, that, it's as simple as that to me. And so if you put, like, if you put him in a different situation or just even, let's keep him on the Knicks, just surround him with more shooting, like Mitchell Robinson, R.J. Barrett, and three actual shooters – I think he's in a much different situation. I don't think he belonged on any of the all-rookie teams. I People no. thought he was snubbed, but he didn't belong there to me. And look, there were some, like he has just some nice, like sort of methodical change of pace to his game when he's when he's inside the arc. That I actually thought that he was a little bit better defensively, like really knew how to use his size um, than I would have ever expected from him as a rookie and particularly on the Knicks. So he's not a, a bust by any means, but I do think they run the risk of, I would say at least curtailing his value or, or sort of, you know, just limiting his growth, at least early on, if they don't put more complimentary talent around him. He turned 20 in June. I refuse to attach the bust label to anyone before they can legally drink alcohol. Just by rule. Next question comes from Paul Hyam. Uh, he asks, is there any precedence for the leap Murray has taken in the playoffs and how likely is it to be sustainable? Thanks for all the hard work you guys do. We appreciate the last part. Uh, I have not done enough research to have immediate names for these playoff leaps, even though we've definitely seen players excel unexpectedly in the past. But I don't, I don't even know if it was that unexpected for Murray. Like there are, there are elements of 
what he's doing that are unsustainable. No one is going to shoot roughly 75% on pull-up triples for a more sustained period, and that's hyperbolic, but only barely. He's not going to shoot close to 50% on threes in general long-term, but for, for a long time, we've seen this full package delivered in these tantalizing flashes. He's always been a player who shoots the ball with extreme confidence that is just utterly captivating. He he has shown these these moments of brilliance operating in pick and rolls and reverse pick and rolls with Nikola Jokic. Uh, there there have been so many indications that this level of play was possible, and he's now sustaining it better than we've seen throughout his career. So I, I don't think that all of a sudden he's going to be this top ten single-handedly series winning superstar. But I, I feel like this these playoffs are are giving the Nuggets more confidence that yes, he can be that second piece to Jokic on an actual championship winning team. Yeah, I I actually looked for a while and couldn't find apt comparisons. Two things that I think stand out is it, this doesn't compare in the sense that Jamal Murray's role with the Nuggets was already prominent. But when you look at what happened with CJ McCollum, where he barely plays during his sophomore regular season and then by necessity ends up getting a ton of minutes through their five postseason performances, and he really has a breakout, and then that just ends up being the sustainable type of player that he is. And the other thing that I'm drawn to is this is not postseason specific, but kind of look what happened to Victor Oladipo when he goes from OKC to Indiana and makes that All-NBA jump. I don't know if that proved sustainable, but the extra responsibility that he was shouldering, coupled with, I think, just the progression of time, where that was his fifth season in the league and you know Jamal Murray's in similar circumstances. This is his fourth. This might all be it coming together. And we saw even last year's playoffs, like he, he won them games. There were also just nights where he disappeared. And then the fact that I think we've seen more consistency from him in these postseason, And then even when he wasn't necessarily, uh, let's look at game seven in uh, against Utah, like didn't have the most efficient game, but he's, they've also gotten more from him on defense. And so I think what this is, winding up being for Murray is a manifestation of what he kind of already was. And he's just reaching a point where you can do it more consistently. Do I expect this to be the level that he plays at where you can say, you know, he's there are nights where he's just dead, even in value with Jokic. Like, I don't know that you can expect that during the, during the regular season. I think even game seven uh, would be a good example just because of how Jokic was able to impact the game, even when he wasn't necessarily scoring at this highest clip his defensive rebounding his passing's absurd I also don't know that Denver's especially during the regular season ever going to give Murray that type of influence over the offense he might be the CJ McCollum type player in the sense where I feel like McCollum is way more important uh, way more important to Portland once they get to the playoffs and I see Jamal Murray just looking at his value as a similar player their styles are just so so different he's a better playmaker than CJ McCollum is but where he's just going to be this hyper valuable player to them in the postseason. I think he's always going to exceed his regular season value in these situations. I like that comparison a lot. Um, I, I do think that the, the rolling player ratings that we use at NBA Math are really telling for Murray because he's been, you know, even though he has or has had this reputation as an inconsistent but flammable scoring guard. He has been very consistently inconsistent, and that's reflected in his trajectory on those rolling player ratings because he tends to to vacillate or between these these values that are pretty the, the floor and the ceiling are pretty close to each other. 
But during the bubble experience and during the actual playoff games, just skyrocketing. And I think that's what happens when, you know, you go from alternating between having one good game and one bad game every set to having two good games and one mediocre game. You know, we're, we're seeing the, the inconsistency leave his game. That's the biggest thing. You know, whether it's sustainable or not, just the fact that that is going away is good news for the future. Our next question, I agree with everything you say said just there. We'll wrap this up with two, one of which is a two-part question, but is quick. Lance Rodeo asks, can Jokic get a statue after the Nuggets win the next eight games? And has everyone submitted their application for the Nuggets bandwagon? I still don't think, look, Jokic, if he's going to have a statue in Denver, it needs to be of, I think, like him in the process of catching the rebound with one hand and then throwing like one of those. The water polo pass. Yeah. I was going to say it, the same thing. But it has to be like the, the full court one. I don't know how you're going to mimic that. Like maybe you have to put the entire, they have to make it in a statue of the entire court in front of him so that you could see another player uh, in a statue. That That's who he's going to hit. But that's the motion I want to see is the water polo pass if he gets a statue. The other thing I'll add is I still don't think people buy into the Nuggets as contenders. I think the Lakers are right to have been excited that they pulled the Nuggets rather than the Clippers, at least on paper. But given how Los Angeles has kind of just seemed dead in the eyes for so long, maybe that's not actually true. But I do still feel like there's a stigma against the Nuggets where they're considered these paper tigers more so than a legitimate threat, which is an absolute wild thing to say, given that they're in the conference finals. It's almost like the way people view Portland getting to the conference finals a year ago, where it was like, well, you know, good job, good effort, but this and this and this happened. And now it's like, well, if the Clippers didn't collapse and, you know, the Jazz had Boyan Bogdanovich and this wasn't, you know, a bubble with unprecedented circumstances, are they in the conference finals? That's what I feel like the actual prevailing sentiment is, whereas I actually feel like it should be people trying to board the Nuggets bandwagon. I don't know who could say they've always been here, because Nuggets fans have certainly not been here. The expectation was not for them to go this far, I don't think. Even people who picked them to win the title, if they did, backed off those stances. I'll raise my hand right now. So I don't know that, you know, this is, I think, especially Nuggets fans knew how good this team was, but no one was picking them to to get this far in the playoffs. So I know that the statue question was at least somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I do I do think it's interesting to think about if if Jokic is able to deliver a title to this Denver organization that has never won a title, the closest that they've come was in 1976, back in the ABA years when they lost in the finals. Um, that, they, they have not come within one series of an NBA title. So if he is able to deliver that, then all of a sudden I think there is a very legitimate case to elevate him above Dan Issel, above Alex English, above David Thompson, above Bobby Jones as the absolute unquestioned best player in Nuggets history. Uh, as for the bandwagon, I think it's going to remain at least partially filled, but not full for a while, just because you know they are very much going to enter this series as, in terms of popular perception at least, as definitive underdogs, just going against the, the NBA's most historic franchise, or one of two most historic franchises, against a team led by LeBron James. Like, they're I don't think that regardless of how entertaining and impressive these last two series have been, I don't think that there are people like lining up to jump on the Denver bandwagon, even if they should be. So my, my follow-up question to that to you, Dan, is how many wins does it take 
in this series to change that. Like if, if they win game one, does the bandwagon fill up or is there still this expectation that LeBron and the Lakers are going to win? Does it, does it happen if they go up 2-0? 2-0 would be it. 2-0 or if they win two of the first three. I think that would be, that would just, that, that would be where we have the bandwagon conversation. That's fair. The last question is one you asked, but it spurred a debate. You asked, is Jason Tatum a top 10 player? It got a slew of its own responses where they said, some of which were more egregious than others, but the prevailing sentiment seemed to be <laughs> he's either top 15 or top 20, not top 10 yet. I believe I had him at number 11 for this past season uh, when I ranked him for Bleacher Report. What I think the factors that go into that is in a regular season, when we get more Paul George, more Joel Embiid, Maybe that's actually not a regular season then. But Kyrie Irving's healthier. Kevin Durant's there. Stephen Curry's healthier. Is Jason Tatum in that top 10 discussion? I'd probably be reticent to put him there right now. But he is he is close to me. Like, he is just ridiculously close. Yeah, so I, I think, like, if, if we actually go through the names here, you know, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Stephen Curry, Anthony Davis... Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, and then I think the the more interesting ones um, are, are in James Harden as well in that unquestioned group. Um, that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight names, I think. Um, and then the next two for me would be Damian Lillard and Kevin Durant, who I just don't know where to place. Like based on his history and his reputation, he definitely deserves to be in that lock section. But I need to see something post Achilles injury to to actually have him in that lock group. But that's that's ten names already. And then I think in that next tier, it's really crowded. We've got we've got Tatum, we've got Jimmy Butler, we've got Chris Paul, we've got Paul George, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, there there are a number of names who you can at least make arguments for being placed ahead of those players who I mentioned at the top. Tatum might be first in that group at this point. I think he's still just shy of the top 10, but I also think you're fooling yourself if you don't think it's at least a discussion. Yeah, look, so where I think I would wind up, I think he needs next season to to actually get there unqualified amid this um, a full pool. And let's just, let's hope that we just have healthier star seasons. What I what I will kind of say though is one, he has the off the dribble three pointer down, which is one of the most challenging, but also probably the most important shot, I would argue, in today's NBA. And he's hitting that. He was above he's above forty percent in the playoffs comfortably, and he was right around there for the regular season as well, was one of the most efficient off the dribble three point shooters in the league. What and I we know what he can do defensively too. Like he's probably going to spend more time on let's say the third best player than the first best player, but he can really muck up things off the ball. And like you're like you can like if you if he switches like you're fine. So I I think he's a a decidedly above average defender. With I I wouldn't be surprised if he made an all defense team um, down the line. What's been most important to me is in the playoffs he's averaging four point three assists per game. And if that's like kind of his new normal, where yes he's playing forty. Uh, minutes to which actually his 40 minutes per game lead the the playoffs but he's at 3.9 assists per 36 minutes which is a pretty dramatic increase over the 3.2 he averaged this past regular season if you can see the uptick continue to where he's going to be at four and a half close to five per 36 like that might cement his status for me and there's room for him to have that type of role in boston because you have kemba but there's not really like that clear secondary facilitator after that there's you know marcus smart Gordon Hayward when he's healthy, Brad Wanamaker, but it's more of this like kind of committee thing. And even just looking long-term because Hayward uh, isn't on the books through next season right now. Wanamaker's a free agent this year. Like they're going to need that 
like there's room for him to be like that secondary go-to um, guy as a passer. And I think that he's shown that he can make the less obvious passes to be that guy. We'll see if this is sustainable. We'll see if he has another, you know, level to kick it up to. But if he does that, like that is where I think he gets to solidify the top 10 status, not just in a season like the one we just had, but sort of unconditionally. Well, that and not getting blocked on game, deciding dunk attempts in the playoffs. I look. That's that's more of a freak Bam Adebayo thing. My wrist that was amazing. My wrist broke when I looked at that picture. <laughs> if you look at the still shot, it just broke. Like I don't it's know ridiculous. how he did that. It's ridiculous. But that'll do it for us. We'll wrap it up here. Sub an hour this time, unlike the past hour and a half to two hour podcast we've been giving you. So I guess an apology is in order, or or you're welcome if you want to hear less of us. Please, as always, though, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox on iTunes and wherever you're getting your podcast. Downloading and subscribing is the most important thing, but whether or not you're using iTunes, please head over there, write us a review, give us a rating. We appreciate every single one that we get, and we are checking them, so we ask you that. Follow us on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Hardwood Knox. And until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, should probably apparently be in the three-point contest next year, Marcus Smart. Let's call him the three and all the D specialist like maybe that's maybe that's how what he should go by so shout out to him nobody builds 5g like verizon builds 5g because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in america and the more you do with 5g the more building it right matters the more your network matters the more verizon engineers going the extra mile matters it's us pushing us it's verizon versus verizon 5g built right from america's most reliable network most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.